This evening, uh, I'd like to start a series of talks that I've given on occasion here before, a series of teachings, but not for a couple or a few years, um, on uh, our true nature, our Buddha nature. And I, I enjoy these particular teachings because I believe in especially when times are difficult, which probably one could say most of the time in one's life, um, it feels really healthy and important in some way to remember some um, truth and reality about our own nature and life um, that is much bigger than the kind of immediate dilemmas. And these teachings are really the underpinning um, of the meditation that we do. They're the qualities that express our awakened heart, our true nature. Let me begin with a story. And the story really talks about the possibilities. A long, long time ago, when you were much younger than you are now, there was a Buddha who was born in India named Dipankara Buddha, who was one of the Buddhas previous to Shakyamuni. Dipankara Buddha was born way before this era. And in the time of Dipankara Buddha, as he was wandering around India offering teachings, or at least as the story is told, who knows? You, tonight you can just listen to the stories and do what you will with them. Um, it said that there was a young man who had a deeply spiritual nature in one of the villages, and then the word came about that a Buddha is coming to visit. And everyone who could went out and made a special preparation for this enlightened being to visit. And this particular young man was late, and he came up and they were going to make a beautiful path for the Buddha to walk on to enter into the village. And this young man came, came running up just at the last minute, and here was this great awakened sage entering the village. And there was a kind of muddy path, and so he threw his robe and himself down and said, as he did this, may I be you know, of some service to this great being. And as the Buddha passed by and felt the dedication of this young man's heart, he said, this young man will become a Buddha like me and a great teacher throughout India. And in fact, as the story goes, he became Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha of 2,500 years ago. Now there's one little detail that's also important to know, that this young man who said, I, seeing this great sage visit his village, said, I would like to dedicate myself so that I become awakened and compassionate as this being is. Um, the detail is how long it took. And as the story is told, it took um, 100,000 mahakalpas and four immensities of time um, for him to practice the perfections of patience, generosity, steadfastness, compassion, uh, wisdom, loving kindness, and so forth. And to give you a sense of the scale of time, in these teachings. It said that if you can imagine a mountain that is one yojana high, yojana is the distance 
that an ox cart goes in a day, about seven miles, we'll say. That's a little higher than Mount Everest. And one Yojana wide and one Yojana long, so a huge mountain. And every hundred years, a bird comes along with a silk scarf in its beak and drags the scarf across the edge of the mountaintop to wear it away. When that mountain is worn away by the scarf, that's one Mahakalpa. <laughs> so a hundred thousand of those, and then four immensities thrown in. And in that time, the Buddha-to-be, who became our Siddhartha Gautama, practiced patience, practiced compassion, practiced steadfastness, practiced truthfulness, practiced generosity, and so forth. And the Buddhist uh, texts and stories from ancient India are full of tales of the past lives of the Buddha, whether you believe it or not, they're really popular and wonderful tales there. And a lot of times they're the kind of folk tales where the Buddha was born um, as a, uh, the king of the deer in the forest, or the Buddha was born as a noble um, elephant or a parrot in various animal incarnations, or the Buddha was born as a, as a, a cowherd and um, went one day to the edge of a cliff and looked down and saw that a, a mother a tiger with her two cubs was there um, and she had uh, leapt off the edge of the cliff in some way and had broken her leg and couldn't move and couldn't feed her poor two um, baby cubs because she couldn't move. And he was so touched in this particular kind of children's story that's told by compassion that he thought, well, maybe I will make myself food for this tiger so she can feed her children. And he threw himself off the cliff as an act of generosity. Um, extreme generosity, one might say. <laughs> um, so there's all these kind of mythological tales about the Buddha in these lives. And I remember when I went to visit Mother Teresa's and to work there a little bit in Calcutta in years past in India, there was a, a little sign in one of the um, places um, work, which was um, a hospice for people who were taken from the street. She called it the home for dying destitutes, Nirmal Fridaya. Um, and one of the little signs on the wall said, Mother said, there was little sayings, Mother said, let them eat you up, you know. And it was really for her nuns, it was the spirit of service of don't hold anything back. So this is the kind of stories that are told. And it's said that whenever a being expresses this awakened heart, they can be called a Buddha or Bodhisattva. I mean, in our Western culture, we might just call them a saint. In um, one great Buddhist text, the Avatamsaka Sutra, of the, which this is one volume of it, it describes um, universes made out of all different kinds of things. Universes made out of stone, like our world, universes made out of fire, universes that are made out of dreams, universes made out of clouds, of flowers, of light, all different kinds of universes. And then after it describes all the possible universes, it also describes the teachings in those universes. And it said that in all places and in all times, no matter what the universe is made of, what brings joy and happiness to beings is the expression of generosity, truthfulness, 
compassion, steadfastness, patience, wisdom, these qualities that are called our true nature, our Buddha nature. Now, you start to hear stories like this, you know, and somebody, I mean, almost anybody would say, well, that's a nice fairy tale or something like that, but it's too much. It's just not possible. I mean, to perfect generosity so that you would throw yourself off the cliff or um, to try to perfect patience, you know, to make myself perfectly generous, um, to perfect one's personality. I mean, what is this perfection? It's like perfecting your body or maybe a perfect cleaning job. You know, you perfectly clean your apartment or you perfectly clean your car. But then what happens? It gets dirty again, right? Perfection doesn't seem to work that way. Um, And so we can easily mistranslate it when we hear these teachings that are sometimes called the noble or the the, um, most um, beautiful perfections of heart to think in some sort of therapeutic way that if we do this for 100,000 Mahakalpas, we too will become, you know, a perfect being. But another way, a more useful way to understand this is that when you hear 100,000 Mahakalpas of this giant mountain being worn away with the silk scarf, what it tells us is that we're not in ordinary time, but rather we're in mythological time, archetypal time which is to say that we're not in time at all. That this is a truth that is universal and speaks about something that's outside of development or or ordinary notions of perfection of place or time and is available not to the small sense of self, to this little sense of self that we try to manipulate, but is an invitation to step into a whole other reality. For we all have within us extraordinary powers and capacities. And they're not always used, but they are there. You know, I had a picture for a long time on my refrigerator of that young Chinese man with his shopping bag standing in front of the line of tanks in, in the time of Tiananmen Square. And here's this whole, you know, army um, column there. And he's standing there and he simply won't move. Um, Or we've all heard the stories and seen the pictures of mothers who lift cars off uh, their children um, or do extraordinary things that seem impossible because of their extraordinary love. So we each have in us these capacities. And to speak of the perfections, to meditate, to undertake a spiritual practice, in one way could be described as nurturing, cultivating, developing patience, compassion, steadfastness, generosity. But even more profoundly, it is an invitation to step out of the small sense of ourself, the body of fear, it's called, the separate sense, and remember who we really are that our true nature is universal and compassionate and connected with all beings. It's really who we are. O nobly born, do not forget, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, do not forget the original goodness of your own heart. 
and your generosity or your care isn't because it's someone else that you're taking care of, most fundamentally, but because you know who you are and they are. And it's us. It's family. Now, the first of these traditional teachings on the perfections of the heart or our true nature is called dhanaparamita, or discovering the generosity that is innate to the heart. Not what we should do or what we might take pride in or possess, but the foundation of it, the universal principle of it, the pleasure of it. Because when something is really beautiful, even in difficulty, there's a kind of happiness that it brings. And dana, this quality of giving, service, many translations for it, letting go, is really an invitation to joy. We can sense, delight in, value, enjoy what it is like to offer to others. And in fact, if you have a life where you can't give anything, it's a really impoverished life. It's a very painful life to be unable to give of your gifts. In fact, we, we live in a sea of giving and generosity. We eat our food and the sun gives to us and the water and the warmth and our homes you know, and the, the, the food that we have, not, not just the people who are bending over in the fields with their bandanas on and picking the food in the truckers who carry the food in their trucks, but um, if you walk in the market here, I, I had this friend who years ago came from Russia back in the early 1980s when Russia was still part of the Soviet Empire and things were really difficult and bleak where he lived. And he said, I came to the U.S. and somebody took me into a supermarket and I, my jaw just dropped. I looked at the abundance and I said, this is some kind of ma- magical place. And then he said, come with me. And he took me three blocks down, you know, from Andronico's and took me into a Safeway. And there was another market with the same amount of stuff in it. And I just couldn't believe it. I stared at it and I wept. And we have this abundance of the world in front of us. And it is given to us all the time. The Buddhist blessing for meals. With gratitude, I remember the people and animals, the plants and insects, creatures of the sky and sea, air and water, fire and earth, all whose joyful exertion blesses my life every day. I remember the ancestors and elders and all that I've been given from generations of beings before. Now, it's not just that we're given so much, but also we reciprocate. I mean, every time you stop at the traffic light, it's an act of generosity. It turns red, yes, and you would get a ticket. There's all of that. But more than that, it's letting somebody else go. Every time somebody doesn't steal the food from the market or, or grab something, there's a, a million acts every day in the community of one person deferring to another, taking care of another. As if we're bowing to one another all the time. And we do this on the 
grounds of our ancestors, whether they were Latino or European or African or Asian or Native American, our Miwok ancestors from this land here. Somebody told me this beautiful phrase about uh, therapy, um, uh, that one way to understand the therapeutic process was to change ghosts to ancestors, which I thought was really interesting. And in some way, if we look with a wise heart, we see how many ancestors we have and the labor and love and dedication that was put into this world that we live upon. So, why is generosity the first expression of our Buddha nature, the first expression of enlightenment? It's simple, because it's about letting go. And our happiness doesn't come from what we get and hold on to. It comes from our ability to let go. And if you haven't learned that yet, it's something worth studying because sooner or later you'll have a crash course in it. So you might as well practice some graciousness with it beforehand. And as we look in ourselves, we can begin to discover the nature of a generous heart and how it expresses our enlightenment, our awakening, your own, what you already know. I mean, reflect about it for a minute. Let yourself reflect on someone who's been generous to you as a benefactor with their love or their money or their time and how it feels to recall them, this person that really was your benefactor and what they've done for you. And one of the principles of the universe that you can look at is that those who are generous are loved. That's a beautiful thing. Take a moment to reflect about times of your own generosity, when you stretched to assist others in financial ways and energetic ways, loving ways, how it feels to do it. the sense of connection, of letting go. The trust in it somehow that you can give and things will get better through giving than through holding on. You can also reflect on the opposite, sense the times, remember when you were stingy, miserly, hoarding, fearful, contracted, grasping. Remember those moments? How does that feel in the heart? What does that express? How is it in the body? So the foundation, the very beginning of the expression of the enlightened heart is connecting with this natural and beautiful sense of generosity, of spirit. Now it's said in the Buddhist teachings that there are three levels of giving. The first is called tentative giving. Sort of the motives are mixed. And I I know, I remember looking at myself in early years, I used to like to give presents to people and 
kind of um, was just part of my mode of being with friends and stuff. I'd always be giving gifts. And then one day, I was pretty young, I think it was still in college, it dawned on me that it wasn't really pure. Ha! You know, a moment of insight came that there was some mixed motives there. You know, I wanted to be liked or I wanted them to remember or think of me in a certain way and so forth. So I saw that and I said, all right, this isn't pure. I'm not going to do this. And so I stopped giving things to people. That felt worse, actually. It, was, it did. It was interesting. I tried for some months, all right, I won't give anything because it's not pure. And then I realized that almost everything I did had some kind of mixture in there. You'll notice it if you look. So I said, well, I'll just do it and I'll make it as conscious as I can. And this is the, the quality of tentative giving. It's a kind of, well... You know, I have this in my garage or my attic or something. I might use it, but then again, it's taking up a lot of space, and maybe I won't use it and I could clear out. And so you kind of give it reluctantly, but even so, there's a certain feeling that, um, ah, when you let go of it, there's some kind of freedom in it, this kind of tentative giving. You know what that's like? The next level up, and you can kind of feel this in yourself as it's talked about, is called brotherly or sisterly giving. Instead of it being tentative, you look around and you say, we're all in it together. I mean, in most traditional cultures, whether you're in Africa or Asia or whatever it happens to be, people are all named or pre-named by some relation. Uncle, you know, um, Mayor, Uncle Willie Brown, right? Maybe he'd be grandfather, I don't know. Probably grandfather Colin Powell would be, he'd get the grandfather epithet, you know, or um, Auntie and Diane Feinstein. We're just doing politicians for the moment, <laughs> you know. But you meet people, or, and they're your brother or your sister, and you treat them that way, or your nephew or your niece, because there was and is a deep sense that we are related. And so brotherly or sisterly giving isn't tentative. Instead, it sees us as a family, you know, and how can you not share with your brother or your sisters? You just, it's natural to you. You want to do it. The Buddha said, if you knew what I do about the power of giving, you wouldn't let a single meal pass without sharing something with another being. Then the next level of this perfection of the heart is called kingly or queenly giving. Royal giving is another word for it. And in this way, not only is it not tentative or, or not uh, even brotherly or sisterly, but instead, there is so much joy in giving to someone that you love. I mean, think of it, the person you love most in the world and the time when you feel the happiest with them, how you give them the very best you have because you want them to enjoy it. And there's such a sense of just giving with a profound openness of heart, um, that it's the giving of kings and queens. Um, I remember Gil Fransdell, who teaches here, we were in a conversation once, and he talked about spending time years ago in North Africa and living with the Berbers in the Atlas Mountains, and um, I guess it was in Morocco. And he said, you know, there's this tremendous 
culture of um, generosity in the um, Muslim world and in the desert world, where you come into a village or a community and you're just so welcome. And he said, when I got there with my friend, we stayed for some days with these people in their tents and we were treated like kings or queens. They rolled out the carpet and they gave us the finest food and so forth. And then when I left and I was leaving, I had a realization, no, it was not we who were treated like kings and queens. It was they who were the kings and queens who could offer it in this fashion. And so this is kingly or queenly giving. And my experience living in Asia as a Buddhist monk was like this. There's so much devotion in the villages and so much love of the spiritual life that even in the poorest areas lived in these kind of remote villages, forest monasteries, where in the dry season there was hardly anything to eat beside rice. You'd go out with your bowl in the morning as a monk, silently walk across the rice paddies, and people would come and they would bow to you and they would give you of the little bit of food they had. With such joy there would be tears in their eyes, oh please take of our food, because it meant so much that they could support something they considered valuable or beautiful. That the generosity was uh, just woven into the happiness of their lives. And anyone who's lived in those kind of cultures knows exactly what I'm talking about. So you can hear from tentative to sisterly or brotherly to royal giving how each is a movement of greater joy and greater happiness and greater trust of heart. And somebody asked Gandhi at one point, you know, about how he could manage to serve and give so much to the people of India, being in prison and walking tirelessly and doing all these things, and how could he possibly do that? And he looked back and he shook his head and I said, I don't do it for the people of India. I do it for myself. Interesting. I do it for myself. But I don't really see, he didn't add this, but later in his teachings, I don't really see a difference between myself and my brothers and sisters. So this becomes, in one way, a practice, and you kind of start where you are, and there's nothing wrong with tentative giving. It's terrific. It feels wonderful even just to clear out the attic. It does. (laughs) And the garage and so forth. You start with the little things, and you do what you can, and then it grows. You discover, oh, I love this. I mean, one of the practices that I've done for, oh, a long time, many, many years, I made a resolution that if I have a thought about giving something away, money or something I have, and so a generous thought, I just do it. You know, when there's little tentative thoughts, well, you might shouldn't, or that's too much, or you might... I just dismiss those thoughts. If, if it comes into my mind, as best as I can, I just act on it and do it. And it's a great practice. And I can't look back and feel like I have any real regret about it. I can't even remember, you know, stuff that I wanted. I mean, it's, you know, I tell it's like the really rich guy who died. I tell this story all the time, you know, and people were wondering, you know, how rich was he and, you know, how much did he leave? Everything, of course. That's how much you leave. <laughs> That's, what you, That's how much you leave. So, Now, what's important in these teachings of the perfection of heart, yes, there's this kind of natural generosity, but there's a danger when we use the word perfections 
that it become idealistic and that we judge ourselves. Hey, I'm not generous enough, you know, and we're really into good self-flagellation in this culture and a kind of deep, unworthy, heavy unworthiness and all that kind of stuff. And really what this speaks about is not idealism, but the natural giving of the heart. Um, in a small Midwestern town, a young boy and his family lived next door to an elderly couple. When the wife of 56 years died, the four-year-old boy went over to visit her grieving husband. He spent the afternoon with him sitting quietly on his lap. Months later, at a town meeting where the local citizens are honored for the kindest acts of the year, the old man nominated this four-year-old boy. Later that evening, as the boy's mother was putting him in bed, she said, What is it you said that day when you spent those hours visiting? And the little boy looked at him and said, Mom, I didn't say anything to him, Mama. I just helped him cry. Sometimes the generosity maybe the most important generosity of all, is just our presence, just our heart, just the willingness to be there with another human being. Because human life is difficult, if you're born into a body on this particular planet, halfway between heaven and earth, you get a more or less equal measure of pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and the kind of daily mundane gain and loss punctured by moments of unspeakable beauty and sometimes oceans of tears of unbearable pain. Um, anybody not have that? <laughs> Raise your hand, you know. And this week just talking to people, people who are in the middle of divorce or someone couple of friends who have um, late-stage cancer with children, um, you know, people who've lost other people in their lives, um, all kinds of difficulties and tragedies. And we live in these times where injustice is really visible to us, where homeless people um, with their signs are, you know, on a lot of our street corners and where our prisons are bulging poverty, racist poverty prisons, full of people. Um, you know, I mean, because I've been working on prison stuff over these last few years a lot, I just read the statistic that 55% of the people in the Alabama state prisons are there for marijuana offenses. Maybe I mentioned that in another talk, but start to think about what are we doing to human beings? Or we look at the kind of political polarization or the suffering in Sudan or Iraq or wherever it happens to be, or the environmental destruction or the continuing insanity of racism that seems to poison so many things in our society and the world. Um, and if we look at it, it seems like, well, how generous am I supposed to be? I mean, this is really a lot to take on. Am I supposed to sacrifice myself? And so there's a kind of wisdom that's needed in generosity as well, a kind of understanding. 
there was a point where the Buddha went to a monastery, as the story is told, where the monks were all quarreling about something or other in the rules that the Buddha had made. And so the Buddha went to try and straighten out this huge quarrel and all these people fighting, and they didn't listen to him. And he said, but wait, I'm the Buddha. I made up these rules. I'm the one. But you know how people are, right? Finally, he just left and he said, I'm going to go up in the forest and be with the animals. They're a lot more civilized than most of the people out here. I had a friend who had been a um, Buddhist monk meditator for a long time, who then became the director of a number of hospices. He, director of the biggest hospice in the Northwest. And he said in his first years of doing hospice work, he spent time with so many people who were dying. Um, adults, teenagers, children, the whole range. Um, and he kind of got consumed by the work. He said, and one day, after a few years of the work, I was at, standing out in the park, um, sitting out in the park one Saturday afternoon, and I saw a father there playing ball with his three-year-old daughter. And they were just giggling and throwing the ball back and forth. He said, and I just started to weep because it had been so long since I seen a father and their child together where one of them wasn't dying. So there's a potential if we misunderstand these teachings to use them to our own detriment. To think, oh, you know, I'm supposed to be generous in this or that way. And make the mistake of trying to imitate them or act from the small or the separate sense of ourself. But we all have limits, you know. I mean, I remember on another visit going to Calcutta with, um, I went with Wes Nisker and we were working on a radio show for National Public Radio that um, aired in the 1970s on spirituality and social responsibility. And we went to interview the Dalai Lama and we interviewed um, one of the leaders of the political leaders of India and Swami Muktananda, and then we went to see Mother Teresa. Um, all these kind of spiritual figures. And when we went in to see Mother Teresa, I had brought a, an envelope with quite a lot of money that was collected for her by some uh, people in different organizations that I knew. I wanted to bring her a gift and we brought all this money and some, some letters of good wishes from people she knew in America. And then we were going to have a little bit of time with her for our um, national public radio show. So we got her. It was hard to connect with her. And um, we saw her, went really early in the morning, and the nuns all do their prayers, and then they go to their work. And as she came out of her prayers, mothers, would you talk to us? Here's the gift we brought, and letters from your friends, and would you give us a little bit of time? So she sat down, and Wes turned on the tape recorder, and then I said, oh, you know, it would be really great if we could videotape this too. So I turned on my light and camera and stuff like that. And I looked over at Mother Teresa, and she looked pretty unhappy. It was like... Um, you know, here she just finished her prayers and with all the sisters, and now they were going to go and work with the lepers or people who are dying. And here are these, you know, young guys from America who are taking her time, and it's like one more camera, right? And I think, oh, I've gone all the way to India, and I've pissed off Mother Teresa, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I saw that. I mean, I don't know what she was actually feeling, but she didn't look very happy about it, right? 
And I just watched her for a minute, I saw that. And then it's like she took a deep breath, closed her eyes for a second, and opened her eyes and said, yes, you know, what's the camera, what's the questions, what can I do for you? So apparently even Mother Teresa had her limits, right? (laughs) To understand true generosity and true compassion, we have to realize that it includes all beings. That is, it also, the circle has to also include, guess who? Ourself. Moi, as Miss Piggy would say, right? (laughs) And without that, generosity isn't whole, isn't complete. Compassion isn't whole or isn't complete. There is an ability to listen with the heart and know when our actions are codependent, when they're out of attachment or fear, or fear of rejection, you know, all those kinds of motivations, when they're skillful, when it's really something that we can do and give that will benefit everyone, including ourselves, And when it's not, what is wise for all beings, including a generosity for this precious one here, because that also is our responsibility. And in that, acknowledging our own limitations and our own capacities and our own cycles. I went to sit with a woman in San Rafael who was dying of cancer, and she'd been the head of a big social service agency for quite a long time. She was loved by so many people. She was such a servant, such a generous heart. And hundreds of people were bringing flowers and food and wanted to be around her. And she looked at me and she said, you know what? She said, I'm tired. I said, well, you know, you're dying, and that's natural, right? And she says, no, no, no. She said, I'm tired of taking care of all these people. I feel like all these people who I've taken care of now want to come one more time, and I can't do it. I actually need some time for myself. Do you think that would be okay? She said, I feel really bad because there are all these people that I've loved, and they feel connected with me, but truth to tell, I don't want to see any of them. I need some time, you know, I've got something on my plate. I've got something to deal with, which is my own dying. Um, Would it be okay? She was feeling really guilty about it, basically. So we spent some time together, really listening, her listening to her heart and so forth. And in the end, she wrote a beautiful letter to all these people that said, you've been so important in my life and I value you and all the kinds of things of her connectedness. And I have one last wish to ask of you as a blessing. Um, I've given myself very little time to be silent in my life, and I really need it now to, so that I can die in peace. And so I ask for your prayers and your blessings, but I ask for this solitude. And then her daughter copied it and sent it out to you know these hundreds of people. So something wise is asked of us when we meditate, when we listen inside. What is our limitations? What is our capacity? And can we listen and act with wisdom, with mercy toward ourselves as well as others? And Gandhi talks about it. Again, he says, Service which is rendered without joy helps neither the server nor the served. But all other pleasures pale into nothingness before that service of the heart which is rendered in the spirit of joy.
So we listen, this kind of karma yoga, the way to God, it says in the Bhagavad Gita, is to serve, but to serve with a joyful heart, to find that place that is natural uh, in our generous heart toward others or at times, as that woman needed, toward this one here, toward ourselves. Because in the end, nobody can tell you. Nobody else has taken your journey. No one else knows exactly what is right for you. Don't believe them if they tell you. They really don't. I mean, yeah, you could listen for a minute, humor them, but really they don't know. Nobody can grow for us. Nobody can love for us. Nobody can forgive for us. Nobody can let go for us. I mean, the great tasks of the heart. We learn in ourselves. We remember what's beautiful in ourselves. And so this listening brings us back to our enlightened heart, to the seasons of generosity, like the Taoist seasons. The time to work and the time to rest is also generous. The time for effort and the time for surrender. The time to care for others and the time to kick them out. I mean, if you don't know what that means, you know, just look at a mother bird or wolf or lioness or whatever and watch. And, you know, there's, they nourish and provide and sacrifice for the young. And then there's a certain day when it's out of here. You know, it's, it's time to go feed yourself, dude, you know, get out there. And they kick their kids out. Um, today's the day you're going to fly, you know, it's time. And I mean, all of us struggle with it, especially in the speed of this culture. Uh, I struggle with it, with the demands of family and teaching and community and prison work and things that I've been doing with um, Tibet and concerns about injustice and racism and political concerns and, and um, Spirit Rock. And this is a wonderful community. People have been so generous. And all of this here is really the result of people's generosity. So how can I not give? And then there's the days where I say, okay, it's time for me to be silent. Take a walk. Turn off CNN. Listen to Mozart. You know? And sometimes it's our humility that's our gift. It's our brokenness that's a gift. It's the, you know, struggles that we've gone through and being honest about it that's a gift. There's a man, I can't remember his last name. His name is David. Um, Some of you will remember his name because he lives in Marin and he runs the Church of 80% Sincerity. Okay, And he goes around to schools, especially to middle schools and high schools. And the remarkable thing about David is that he has a profoundly disfigured face. Okay? And he talks about the church of 80% sincerity. He said, because 80% is pretty good for most of us. He said, if you could be compassionate 80% of the time, you're doing really good. You know, and 80% wise and maybe even 80% celibate, you'd be all right, you know, or whatever it happens to be. So he'll go into high schools or middle schools and talk about the reality of unconditioned love. 
And then he says, of course, you know, unconditioned love has a shelf life of about 10 seconds, right? <laughs> Darling, I'll love you till the end of dinner, right? <laughs> and then some other state comes. So he's very funny and he's very wise. And sometimes he brings his wife with him. He's married to this really beautiful woman, Marlene. And he says to the kids, look at me. Here I am, the worst thing you can imagine, right? I mean, and most teenagers think this way. They already think their faces and bodies are disfigured. It is. I mean, no matter how beautiful they look to us. And teenagers have this, this whole, I'm deformed, you know. And then they look at him and they get to laugh and recognize their fears and self-pities. And they're just relieved to be a human being with their own flaws in the mirror of his life. And here he is outwardly horrible to look at in some way, and inwardly absolutely beautiful. He is this beautiful, humorous, wise, shining spirit, you know. And by the end, he'll look at them and, you know, his, in the beginning he'll say, you can't look at me, can you? It's too hard. Just, you know, I know that. That's okay. You don't have to look. But take a peek if you want later, you know, when I'm not looking. I mean, he's really... And by the end, he says, I look different to you right now, don't I? And they all nod. They know it's true. And then they stand up and give him a standing ovation by the time he leaves. So what we have to give is not always some great big glamorous kind of movie star, you know, image of it. Sometimes as Ramdas talks about, you know, in is fierce grace, that it's the things that have been the most difficult, that the disabilities, the, the struggles, our honesty about it, that is a real gift to another human being. Like this nun I read about who was working in Peru and got crippling arthritis, couldn't teach anymore, and she began to minister to all the people who were dis- disabled in her community. And she became so beloved because she'd learned to care for everybody who was hidden away in that particular society. So the perfection of generosity doesn't come by making or being or becoming. It just comes from loving people, caring for them, feeding them. You want to know how to express your enlightenment? It's simple. Love people. Care for them. And in it, this distinction between who we are and who they are falls away. Like the tiger, uh, you know, the mother tiger at the end of the, the bottom of the cliff. That kind of story. Somehow when we sit and get silent or look in the eyes of someone and see their secret beauty, there's a, a knowing that it's not just me here, but it's us, this web of life. It's so mysterious. I would rather live in a world where my life is surrounded by mystery than live in a world so small that my thinking mind could understand, imagine that it understands it all. So mysterious. To listen really deeply, to love really deeply, is nothing about fixing ourselves or anybody else. That's kind of the ego that wants to fix stuff. We've done that a long time. But true generosity 
compassion stems from a silent communion with us. It's inclusive and contagious and reckless. And it's not how much you get that really makes you happy. It's how much you can give. Rumi, again, puts it this way. He says, Love is reckless, not reason. Reason seeks a profit. Love comes on strong, consuming herself unabashed. Yet in the midst of suffering, love proceeds like a millstone, hard-surfaced and straightforward. Having died to self-interest, she risks everything and asks for nothing. Love gambles away every gift. Gambling yourself away is beyond any spiritual ideal or technique. Love seeks grace and favor. Love overcomes all, as it says, forgives all, understands all, heals all. There's no problem, no difficulty, no wall, no sorrow that enough love cannot heal, overcome. Like a millstone. Now, it's interesting if you read in the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu sacred text, in the, in the eightfold path there, the yamas and niyamas of Patanjali, instead of generosity, Patanjali writes, neither give nor receive. That's the teaching. Now, this is really peculiar. Instead of saying, be, you know, be aware of this innate generosity of heart, neither give nor receive. And what that teaching means is another language for what we've been talking about. It is generosity for no reason at all. It is the happiness without a cause, the joy for no reason. It moves whenever we let go of the deficiency of heart and feel connected with the world, our natural abundance, our Buddha nature. Again, as Rumi says, looking out of the treasury, walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. Anybody still sober in this weather must be really afraid. Um, it's natural. I mean, I remember my daughter um, when she was little. You know how little kids are? They just love to give stuff away. Consider this poem from Alison Luderman. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you and instead offers you her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green dinosaur as big as she is, her cloth doll with long blonde pigtails, her battered cardboard book swung open on soggy pages. If you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, a fistful of grass, a pebble by way of introduction or just because. And if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of giving and receiving what is all one. In the same way, Sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face. Rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. (laughs) The Iroquois understood this and they didn't want their children to forget it. So one of the beautiful rituals in the Iroquois nation was to take young children and put them in the center of the community in the winter, 
in the center of a circle of their elders and give them first wonderful food to eat until they were really full and then someone outside the circle would would cry, I'm hungry, I have no food, I'm hungry. And the child would be led to take of this abundance of food and feed them. And then they would ply the children with drinks and then someone would cry, oh, we have nothing good to drink, we are thirsty. And the children would give after their own sense of abundance to others. And finally they would be given all these beautiful pelts and weavings and things to keep them warm. And then from outside the circle, oh, we are freezing, we are cold, please help us. And the children would be led to give and put around these others naturally what had been given to them. It is so innate in us, that kind of Bedouin hospitality that I was talking about. What a beautiful thing to receive and give when we trust this, when we step from the small sense of self, the deficiency, to this unimagined possibility that we can love every day and care for the human beings around us. I mean, I know a mother whose daughter um, was in a really um, bad car accident and was paralyzed, and they said she's going to be paralyzed for life, um, her teenage daughter. And this mother simply wouldn't accept it and spent three years, quit her job, and spent three years lifting and lowering and raising her daughter's arm and speaking to her and getting her to track with her eyes until she brought her daughter back. She just did it. You know how mothers can be in their best, right? Or this family that I like to tell about who in Oregon had really wanted children, were unable to have children of their own, so decided to adopt a child and thought, well, let's adopt a child who really needs us. So they um, adopted an Indian child and they said, do you have a child who is disabled, who might really need, we, can, we have a lot of love and care, we can take care for this, of a child. Um, oh, wait a second, I've got the story wrong. They, did, they adopted a child from India and then they found out that their child was disabled. This is right. child had a cerebral palsy. Um, so she seemed normal in the beginning. But then as they learned she had cerebral palsy, they realized that she would never walk, that she would have to be in a little wheelchair. And her mind was fine, but her body was not. Um, And after three years of having this child, then they became worried about what would this child do because they'd be this little girl or girl would be disabled and wouldn't have anybody to play with in schools. It would be really difficult. And they thought she needs a playmate. So they decided to adopt a second child. And they um, went to India and they said, we need to adopt a brother or sister for our, for our three-year-old girl who we've adopted who has cerebral palsy. But please, um, could you give us a disabled child so she will have someone to play with who is like her? Imagine this. Imagine you adopt a child and then it turns out that she's severely disabled. And your response is, oh, wow, let me get another one like this so that they can be together. This really isn't about generosity in a way. It's about love. It's about connectedness. Imagine, says uh, Daniel Berrigan, um, uh, I would give anything for the look in a hungry man's eyes when I give him the bread that I baked with my own hands. 
Imagine that you could give to those who need in this world. If you really could do this, would you not do it? So what we do in these practices is really listen to the heart and remember what's possible, to lo- how we can love one another. And you can play with this. You know, you can practice. Um, if you have a thought of generosity, see what it's like to follow it just as soon as it comes. Or give something to someone you don't like and just check out what that feels like. It's interesting, you know. Or give someone an unexpected gift this week. See what that feels like. Just notice it. Or give a gift to a child and then give one to an adult and see what the difference is like in that. Or give something away anonymously, something big. Try that and see how that feels. You know? Or notice what it's like to receive. Because actually we're giving and receiving all the time, and it's not us as me and you. It's all of us together. We're just in it together. It's all this sacred stuff that we exchange that was, it doesn't belong to anybody. It's this divine world. And I guess I'll end with a story that I read not so long ago, but it seems so fitting for this talk. Um, I'm a social worker. And I got a phone call the other day from a woman who works for the Gallup poll. She's explaining her poll on how much time people spend helping. I finally start to crack up seeing the absurdity of it. You're crazy how much time people are helping. What kind of question is that? Tell Gallup he's nuts. She started to laugh, too. I know, that's what I said, but what can I tell you? It's my job. She was sort of whispering conspiratorial, and I laughed even more. Then I asked her, well, am I helping you? She said, I guess so, sort of, wasn't, didn't I? I said, well, that's your job to figure out. And then I threw in, we're all just trying to make the best of a nutty situation. In fact, that's what I'm trying to do all the time. That's it. I want you to put me down in the Gallup poll as someone who helps all the time. More laughter. She said, we don't have a category for all the time. (laughs) Oh, ye of little faith. But we do have a line here that says all of the above. Perfect, I said. Put me down under all of the above. I'm a very all of the above kind of person. In fact, you have to put everybody down under all of the above. Everybody's just trying to make the best of a nutty situation. Gallup can release a poll that says, everybody we talk to in America is helping. (laughs) God, she said, I wish I had the nerve. Maybe I'll do it with alternate answers. One out of every two people in America is helping. The other half is being helped. (laughs) Finally, we said goodbye. It's been great, I said. Very helpful, she agreed. (laughs) Months later, there's this story in the newspaper. This is true. Gallup poll reveals half of all Americans help out as volunteers. Right there in the paper, she did it. She pulled it off. I rush into the kitchen, read the headline to my wife. That's me, I exclaim. Which half, says my very wise and wonderful wife. All of the above, I answer triumphantly. Well, could all of the above just help wash the dishes, she answers smilingly. So let your eyes close for a minute. And just sit with whatever these words may have touched in you.
the joy of giving, the innate generosity of heart. The fact that we don't own anything anyway, we just have it for a little while, we're all in it together. And this beautiful expression that's given to us of caring for ourselves and one another. So take these teachings um, for in whatever way they might be of benefit to you, especially over this next week. Um, play with them and listen to your heart and find the happiness that's really genuine, especially in these times we need it more than anything. Um, let us do a little chant before we go out into the evening, just a one syllable, really short, um, then we'll go out into this summer night. And the chant is a very simple one. In the Buddhist uh, tradition, there is a text which is the complete and perfect teachings of uh, wisdom in 80,000 verses that's then summed up in 8,000 verses and in 800 verses. And fortunately, for your sake tonight, it's summed up in one syllable, which saves a lot of study. So, And the reason that it's considered the expression of perfect wisdom in one syllable, this Sanskrit seed syllable, is this syllable that's considered the first syllable of life and the last one. And most importantly, it is the sound of letting go, of opening. It's the seed syllable, ah. So let's just sing ah for a little while. And as you do, you can just feel what it's time to let go of so that you can go back out to your home your community in this world that needs your good heart so much. Ah, add harmony. Ah, ah, ah. attention and may your week ahead, no matter what you face, have joy in it, the joy of this wisdom of your heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.